Well, good morning, sisters and brothers. Uh, today we are in 1 Samuel chapter 16. 1 Samuel chapter 16. Uh, let me lead us in prayer as we begin. Uh, Heavenly Father, uh, we pray that as we come to this passage, uh, you'll give us eyes to see uh, what you want us to see here, that you give us ears uh, to hear your word, uh, and give us hearts uh, that love you and long to obey you uh, in humble service. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever been in a situation in which you saw things one way, but then new information came in and made you see those same things in a completely different way? They were the same things, same people, same circumstances, same problems, but now the way you look at them was totally different. Sometimes you may look at things one way, and someone else looks at the same things in a different way. When that happens, who can tell who is right? We all have these different ways of seeing because we are all limited in our knowledge and our wisdom, and we are also biased because of our sin. Some people think there is no right way of looking at them. There is just an infinite number of alternative ways. And what is right for you is right for you, and what is right for me is right for me. But the Bible tells us that God is all-knowing, all-wise, and perfectly good. And so the way he sees things is the right way to see them. And the right way to see them is right, because that's how he sees them. God doesn't tell us how he sees everything, but he's told us enough for us to be able to see enough to relate to him properly and to live wisely in this world. But we need to train ourselves to see things his way in as much as he has revealed. And our passage today will help us to do that in some particularly important areas. Last week, we saw how God's people, Israel, demanded a king. Instead of trusting in God and obeying the covenant, they tried to get their security from a human king. Saul, the king God gave them, started off well, but like Israel, he failed to trust God and so disobeyed him. And he ended up as someone whose religion was all about externals rather than from the heart. He rejected God's word and God rejected him as king. Much to the grief of Samuel, the prophet who had first anointed him and had finally brought him the news of God's rejection. In our passage today, God has let the prophet Samuel grieve for Saul for a while. But now he says to him in chapter 16 verse 1, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. God is sending him to anoint a new king by pouring oil over his head. Uh, back in chapter 9, uh, Saul himself was secretly appointed by Samuel to show that he was the king, and only later was he publicly declared to be king, and, and that's what's going to happen here again. Uh, Samuel, uh, God tells Samuel to go to the home of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, because the new king is going to be one of his sons. Uh, notice how God puts it at the end of verse 1, For I have provided for myself a king among his sons. Right? Saul was the king that God chose for the people because they demanded one. This new king would be for him. I have provided for myself, or literally I have seen for myself, a king among the sons of Jesse. And God was going to fulfill these words at two levels. Samuel was going to anoint a literal son of Jesse. God had seen him and chosen him. But the ultimate king that God was going to provide for himself would also be a son of Jesse, in the sense that he was Jesse's descendant. 
and that king would be God's perfect king, God's preferred chosen instrument through which he would rule his people, not just in Israel, but the whole world. Now, when Samuel had anointed Saul all those years before, there was no real problem with it because, well, there was no king in Israel and Samuel himself was the de facto leader. But now there is a king, and this would be treason. And so Samuel was understandably a bit nervous. Uh, he says in verse 2, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. Well, God has a solution. Take a heifer, a young cow, with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what to do, and you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Right? God doesn't tell Samuel to lie, but he doesn't tell him to publicize what he's doing either. Samuel is going to offer a sacrifice and conveniently invite Jesse along as well. For one can still be honest without being naively revealing of things to other people who shouldn't know. Samuel goes to Bethlehem and is met by a very nervous delegation of elders who ask if he comes peaceably. To their relief, he says in verse 5, Peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord and he invites them to come along as well. Most importantly, Jesse and his sons are consecrated and invited. They are part of the guest list. We're not told what Samuel says to Jesse, but it seems like he gets him in on the plan. Perhaps he arranges for his family to come at a different time from everyone else. But, and, and when they come, the first of Jesse's sons that Samuel sees is the eldest son, Eliab. And Samuel, in verse 6, thinks, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But God says, Do not look on his appearance, or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees, not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Eliab might be tall and good-looking, but the Lord who looks on the heart rejected him. He didn't choose him. Samuel's not seeing what God sees. Sometimes we can jump too quickly to conclusions about people, can't we? Some people give a very good first impression. It takes a long time for their true colors to be shown. And sometimes the people who seem least impressive on the outside are the greatest of all. Of course, the ultimate example we have is in King Jesus himself. Isaiah 53 verse 3 says he had no formal majesty that we should look upon him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. But God doesn't judge by outward appearances. God sees the heart and sees in Jesus his very own. So Eliab is not chosen, and the quest for God's king continues. Jesse calls Abinadab, makes him pass before Samuel. Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Shammah passes by. Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And so one by one, Jesse makes all his seven sons pass by Samuel, and Samuel has to say, the Lord has not chosen these. Was this all a big mistake? Then Samuel asks, are all your sons here? Well, there's the youngest, or literally the smallest. So we left him looking after the sheep. 
And Samuel says, send and get him. We will not sit down until he comes here. And so Samuel, the prophet of God, stands there and waits for the kid. And when he walks in, in verse 12, it says that he is ruddy, which means reddish, maybe sunburnt from looking after the sheep. He has beautiful eyes, a Hebrew way of saying that he's good looking. He is handsome. Remember how God didn't choose Eliab, who was good looking? Well, God doesn't reject this boy simply because he is good looking. It's not as if God has something against good looking people, much to your relief, I'm sure. It's just that he doesn't look at the outward appearance. He looks at the heart. And God has chosen this boy. And so he says to Samuel, arise, anoint him, for this is the one. And so Samuel takes the oil that is brought in his hollow horn, and he pours it out over him. And the Spirit of God rushes upon this boy, whose name we are now told is David. The Spirit had been on Saul, but now it is on him. David is now the real anointed one, or in Hebrew, the Messiah, or in Greek, the Christ. Anointed not just with oil, but with the Spirit. David might now be the anointed one, but he's actually only a shadow of the better one to come. Great David's greatest son would be truly the Lord's anointed, the true Messiah, the true Christ. And when the Apostle Peter preached Jesus in Acts 10, he reminded his hearers uh, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. Jesus was anointed by the Spirit at his baptism. We read about it this morning. And only later was he given this kingdom. In his three years of ministry, he was king incognito. He would spend those three years of his earthly ministry virtually unrecognized as king, while Herod and Caiaphas and others ruled, uh, just as David would be unrecognized as king while Saul ruled. So what happens here to David sets up the pattern of what will happen with Jesus. Anointed first, receive the kingdom later. And what happens in between? Well, we'll see in the weeks to come. With the anointing of David, Samuel goes back home to Ramah. And the focus of the book from here to the end of 2 Samuel will be on David. Meanwhile, back at the palace, the spirit had departed from Saul. Many years later, when David sinned terribly as king, he would plead to God, Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Referring back to this incident. Saul was still the king, but without the anointing of God's spirit. That would have been a scary place to be, having the responsibility for God's people without God's special empowering to fulfill it. The second half of chapter 16 tells us what follows. Now, as we look at this, we note that there is good evidence from within the text that this is a flash forward to sometime after the David and Goliath narrative in the next chapter. Right? We're talking about verses uh, 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 15 onwards. Uh, David is described in this passage here as a warrior which makes more sense chronologically after chapter 17 rather than before. And in chapter 17, Saul doesn't seem to know who David is, which, much, which makes more sense before the second half of chapter 16 and not after. And so by the hint that the narrator actually gives us within the text, the narrator has told us that he's deliberately put this story here, even though it's out of chronological order. And there must be a reason why he's doing that. We need to figure that out as we think about this passage. Now we're told in verse 14 that a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented Saul. Now the word harmful spirit could mean evil spirit, 
uh, or it could simply be a bad disposition. But either way, this is not. This is this is this is from God. Uh, sometimes people are surprised when they read things like this because they forget that God sends bad things as well as good things. He's the one who lifts up as well as the one who brings down. He brings judgment as well as salvation. And he even uses things that bad people, and indeed bad spirits do, for his good purpose, without any way being bad himself. Samuel's uh, soul servants diagnose the problem, and they prescribe musical therapy. Verse 15. Behold now, a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre. And when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it and you will be well. Right? Music therapy might work on a bad disposition. I can't see why they think it would work on an evil spirit. And yet either way, the solution misses the root of the problem. Right, these guys know this is from God. What they should be telling the king is to sort things out with God. Uh, Saul needs to repent and beg God to forgive his rebellious heart. He needs to humble himself and come back under God as his king. Music therapy is just treating the symptoms. Saul needs to deal with the root issue. And I wonder if sometimes we can be like that too. Do we go around trying to solve our problems desperately doing that when, when the real issue, the underlying issue, is actually one of repentance and obedience. Now, of course, there are many times when things go wrong for no other reason than we're living in a fallen world. And there are other times that God is stretching us and molding us and training us in righteousness. But, but sometimes, just sometimes, God is using things to discipline us. And so it is right to keep examining ourselves and to see if there are areas where we need to repent. And if we, there are, we need to take them to the cross and experience the great forgiveness that God has bought for us there by the blood of his own Son, and then amend our lives to follow in his ways. Saul needs to repent, but instead he agrees to the suggestion of his servants. He says, Provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. And wonder of wonders, the man they provide for Saul as musician would turn out to be the same man that God had provided for himself as king. For one of the young men answers, Behold, I have seen, there's that word again, a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, a man of good presence. Now, that's, that's a strong recommendation so far, isn't it? All Saul was looking for is, is someone who can play well. But this young man has eyes to see in the son of Jesse. Not only a musician and a warrior, but also something even more important. He continues in verse 18. And the Lord is with him. The Lord is with him. Remember when, Jesus, when Peter spoke about Jesus, the ultimate king in Acts 10.38? He described how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. And then it says, for God was with him. God was indeed with his anointed king at this time too. This anonymous young man sees it. Saul doesn't see it. He just takes the young man's recommendation at surface level and sends a message to Jesse in verse 19. Send me David, your son, who is with the sheep. Now, 
if I were Jesse, I would be worried. Has, has Saul found out about the anointing? Right? It's just a trap. Uh, Jesse takes a donkey laden with bread, a skin of wine, and a young goat, sends him with David as presents for Saul. And David, verse 21, comes to Saul and enters his service. The anointed king is now the servant king. In fact, the king's servant. But thankfully, Saul doesn't know. In fact, David is such an endearing character that even Saul likes him. Now, verse 21, it says, Saul loved him greatly. Now, he becomes Saul's armor bearer, the guy who carries around his fighting equipment, right? the ancient equivalent of a caddy. And he's a good servant. He's not letting the fact that he's anointed get to his head. He's serving Saul willingly and happily and loyally. He's not stabbing him in the back or doing him harm, even though he's meant to be his replacement. And so Saul sends another message to David's father. Let David remain in my service, for he has found favor in my sight. And even though he's now the armor bearer, he keeps his musician role as well. And so in verse 23, whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon David, a Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hands. So Saul was refreshed and well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. Isn't that interesting? When the spirit departed from Saul, he began to be tormented by a harmful spirit, which only goes away through the servant work of the anointed one. When Jesus, the son of David, came, one of the big things he did was to drive out evil spirits. Not just bad dispositions, but, but demons, real unclean spirits. Look at Acts 10.38 again. God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and the power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. So once again, we have in David a shadow, just a pale one, of the deliverers that would come through the true king. The king who really was after God's heart, the king that God really provided for himself. And even in this aspect, Jesus is superior to David. David helped one man. Jesus freed many, many people who were held in bondage by these dark forces. David played music to soothe the soul. Jesus cast out evil spirits with a word. David could only provide symptomatic relief. Jesus deals with the whole problem of human sin that led to the evil spirits getting a foothold in the first place. For on the cross, he took our sin and our punishment and bore our curse on our behalf. And he bore our sin completely so that those who belong to Jesus Jesus don't carry it anymore, and there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, and so we are free from accusation, and since the devil can no longer accuse us, he has lost his power over us, and he is defeated. Jesus has won the victory by dealing with evil at its deepest level. So, David now is content to carry Saul's armor, and to play him music whenever Saul feels like it, which is Seems like a humbling job, isn't it, for an incoming king? Yet in all this we see God's hand. He is introducing David to the workings of the king's court and preparing him to one day rule the nation. But now, in the meantime, God's true anointed king seems so insignificant, so puny beside King Saul. He's just playing the, heart, the part of the humble servant. But remember we saw last week, God lifts up, he brings down, and he will exalt his anointed. And so David is willing to be the humble servant, while waiting for the day when God will exalt him, and he will reign in glory. 
Friends, humble service always comes before glory. Jesus too was the humble hidden king. Before he entered glory, he served humbly. He worked with his hands as a carpenter until he was anointed. He traveled around preaching the gospel, but was rejected. He humbled himself unto death, even death in the most disgraceful way, on the cross, to serve God and serve us by taking away our sins. And because of that, God publicly declared him to be king by raising him from the dead and lifting him up to the highest place, bestowing upon him the name that is above all names, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. And though his rule is now hidden, one day it shall be seen when the kingdoms of the world become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ, his anointed one, and he shall reign forever and ever. Humble service came before glory for Jesus. And it's the same for us, isn't it? Colossians 3 says that you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. But when Christ, who is your life, appears, when Jesus comes again, then you will appear with him in glory. Brothers and sisters, we are destined for glory, but humble service must come first. Paul says in Philippians 2, Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then he tells how Jesus served humbly before he was exalted to glory. Brothers and sisters, we are to serve humbly as we wait for the glory to come. We must not preempt God by, by seeking to grab it now. Instead, we must be content to humbly serve God and others in whatever way God gives us. Humble service comes before glory. Finally, remember how I said we need to figure out why the narrator has put the second half of this chapter where it is instead of taking things chronologically? You might think of several reasons. I can think of three. Firstly, when the anointing spirit comes upon David, he departs from Saul. And so this leads on naturally to the harmful spirit disturbing Saul. And the problem might have been there for a long time before the solution was found, and, and David and Goliath, which is after the David and Goliath incident next week, but since the problem is recorded, starts right away, then the solution is recorded right away, because the solution is explained together with the problem. But that's the simple reason. But there may also be a couple of deeper ones. It may well be that the moment we are introduced to the new king, God wants us to see his humble service. God looks at his heart. And his heart is that of a humble servant. And the Lord who looks into the heart likes what he sees. And so before we meet David the hero, God wants us to meet David the servant. Thirdly, there is that whole interplay on seeing that started in the first part of the chapter and continues into the second. And so the narrator wants to preserve that for us as a reminder of the fact that we need to see things God's way. Even Samuel got it wrong when he saw David's older brother. You can't blame him because at this point he didn't know whom God saw for himself. But now we know. And we know that if we, if we, if we take a time machine and peek into the palace at the time of chapter 16, the real king, God's chosen king, the one whose dynasty would last forever, is the caddy who is carrying around Saul's armor for him. 
the guy that Saul orders to play some music when he feels like it, the servant. For we too are learning to see things God's way. And if we went back to Bethlehem at the right time at about a thousand years after this, we might see a baby in his mother's arms in swaddling clothes. And if we zoom forward to the right time about 30 years after that, we might see a, a prisoner being mocked and scorned and whipped and crucified and killed. And God tells us that this baby and this man hanging on a cross, this is God's ultimate chosen one, the king of the universe, the savior of the world. It doesn't look like it. We can only know that as we learn to see things God's way. And as you look in KL or PJ this morning, to one of the many houses or apartments there, you might see someone who looks a lot like yourself. Tired, struggling, dejected. But if that someone is trusting in Jesus, then actually they are also the child of the living God, deeply loved by him, seen and chosen by him before the foundation of the world to join him in eternal glory. They might look like a loser to the world, but they have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And so, among the, and so they are among the most privileged of people in the world. That is why Paul prays in Ephesians 1 that our spiritual eyes would be enlightened so that we would be able to see the hope that God has called us to, the riches of his glorious inheritance and his amazing great power towards us who believe. We are not able to look at people's hearts like God does. But when God opens our eyes through his revelation and shows us his king, he shows us where we stand in relation to him. Let us pray for ourselves and for others that we might indeed see God's king.